You are, of course, one of the most controversial figures we've had in the Senate in a long time. And you have the distinction of having coined uh, a new word for the dictionary, namely McCarthyism. Now, uh, how do you define McCarthyism, sir? Mr. Huey, I didn't, I didn't uh, coin the phrase. The Daily Worker originated the phrase out of the first paper that used it. It's their phrase. We let them define it. Now, in the... To, that, to them, it means, of course, fighting communism. Or putting it the way one columnist did the other day, he said, apparently McCarthyism means calling a man a communist who is later proven to be one. The man, Joseph McCarthy, and the phenomenon McCarthyism were two essentially distinct entities. The man was motivated by overweening personal ambition, which was allied to a penchant for opportunism. The term McCarthyism has a, an existence independent of the man. Its significance lies not so much in its aims as in the methods used to pursue those aims. These involve the subversion of most precepts of justice. A man is guilty until he proves himself innocent, unable to remain silent without proving his guilt, and forbidden from holding opinions contrary to those of his inquisitors. Ultimately, a point is reached where accusation alone becomes tantamount to guilt. If the charges do not stick, then the smear will. In four years, Joseph McCarthy did not unearth a single communist. I asked historian William V. Shannon and former Democratic congressman Max McCarthy how he consistently escaped exposure. The attitude that was prevalent in some circles at the time, uh, that, well, where there's smoke, there's fire, that actually a lot of people who were not lawyers themselves, who just average citizens, took the attitude, well... Maybe he's not all right, but, you know, part of this is true. And where there's smoke, there's fire. People were, it wasn't a very enlightened attitude, uh, but he was able to pander to that idea that grew out of this insecurity of the time. And even some of his people would say, well, right, he wasn't 100% right, but he was partly right, and they would defend him. He always would go on the attack. If anybody, you know, uh, tried to put punch holes in some of his arguments, he would turn it right around and accuse that person of something himself. It's because um, he was touching a raw nerve, and uh, he was res people were responding to deeply felt emotions of their own, which he was... Um, plucking the way a, a, a guitarist uh, plucks the strings of his instrument. There was a great feeling of resentment and an inarticulate and unfocused feeling that something or somebody must be to blame. How could it all have turned out so badly? And, uh, uh, and McCarthy came along and, sa and said, I have, in effect, the answer. It was all turning out so badly because there were communists hidden away in secret places high in the government, in the White House, the State Department, the Foreign Service, the World Bank. They were giving away our secrets to the Russians and the Chinese. They were tipping off the enemy. They were plotting our downfall while we were all winning the war. And this, um, and of course there were uh, communists in various high places in American life, not very many, and probably not, not of any great significance in retrospect, but there were a few, and uh, this, um, for some people who were uh, disillusioned and frustrated by the frustrations of the Cold War, this seemed like a plausible uh, exercise in scapegoating. 
There did, however, come a time when the charade could not continue. A succession of events were to take place which would culminate in McCarthy's political demise. It was the press who had helped launch him, so fittingly, it was the press, in the form of the New York Post, which first penetrated the senator's armour in 1951. The paper published a well-researched series of articles in which McCarthy's background, his methods and his charges were subjected to close scrutiny. The co-author of these articles was William V. Shannon. I was just uh, starting out then as a young Washington correspondent and I was working in the Washington Bureau of the New York Post and a colleague on the Post, Oliver Pilot, and I uh, cooperated on a series of 12 articles uh, called uh, Joe McCarthy, The One-Man Mob. I guess the title will give you an idea of the tone of the articles. And these articles uh, won the Page One Award of the New York Newspaper Guild in New York in 1952 for national reporting. And they were the first uh, comprehensive effort to document McCarthy's rise and uh, various disreputable episodes in his uh, Wisconsin and early Senate career. Did they have any effect in discrediting McCarthy? Oh, yes, they became uh, one of the principal source books, you might say, for all subsequent uh, attacks on McCarthy by other journalists and by public figures. Were they typical of the kind of press McCarthy got at that time, or were they something different? Were they a new departure? Uh, no, they were different. Um, uh, they were muckraking and crusading in a way that most American newspapers are not on that or any other issue. McCarthy's second setback came in the form of a direct challenge from a Columbia University professor, Corliss Lamont. The challenge came during the McCarthy subcommittee's investigations into the presence of alleged communists in the U.S. Army base in Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. Lamont was a sitting duck for McCarthy, but as in many other cases, the senator's grounds for summoning Lamont before him were flimsy. Well, I had written a book called The Peoples of the Soviet Union telling about the more than 200 minorities, national and racial minorities, in the USSR, and had also <coughs> written a chapter in a pamphlet uh, on the psychological traits of these minority peoples. McCarthy uh, blew his top when he found that uh, this book and this brochure were in one of the uh, <clears throat> United States libraries abroad, but worse than that, that the United States Army was uh, uh, using them as uh, background material to learn about the Soviet Union. In the opinion of Lamont, McCarthy was in violation of the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of expression. He began his testimony before the committee by denying that he was then, or ever had been, a communist. Having got that issue out of the way, he then refused to answer any further questions about his political beliefs, citing the First Amendment as his justification. McCarthy did not hesitate to point to uh, a man uh, up at the corner who had sworn he had known me as a member of the Communist Party. And uh, that was his little... Uh, little nudge to show me that he would get me for perjury if uh, I denied that I was a communist, which I had already uh, done. That uh, 
man's name and former uh, was uh, Louis Boudin's. But uh, when the case actually came before the judge and he made uh, a uh, decision on it, uh, my lawyer showed that McCarthy's committee uh, had no legal standing whatsoever. It was a subcommittee of uh, a committee on government affairs of the U.S. Senate. And uh, any subcommittee must get from its parent committee a, a directive as to what it can investigate and what it won't investigate. McCarthy got no such directive, and he did that on purpose because a directive would have limited him in some way. And he probably would not have been able to come after uh, me. Uh, but uh, there were uh, seven or rather eight cases in the courts raising the same issue. And in each case, the judge threw out McCarthy's case. He lost every time. Lamont had been hoping to win his case on the basis of the First Amendment and put a stop to McCarthy in this way. Was he disappointed with the actual result? I was indeed disappointed because uh, all the liberals and radicals of that day, including myself, uh, feeling that McCarthy was such a dangerous demagogue, uh, wanted the First Amendment tested. And uh, the Supreme Court of the United States in, uh, and the other courts uh, refused to go that far because they got rid of the cases uh, uh, by uh, uh, <clears throat> showing that uh, they were uh, didn't need the First Amendment because McCarthy's committee was illegal in the first place. The court decision which found McCarthy's committee to have been acting illegally did not come until after his decline. The loophole in the committee's terms of reference had been discovered not by Lamont, but by the attorney representing the army in the final McCarthy hearings, Joseph Welch. Nonetheless, Lamont's case was important, his courage was an example to others, and the practical application of Welch's discovery took some of the sting out of the impending contempt cases arising out of McCarthy's subcommittee. The effects of this case were far more subtle than the body blow McCarthy suffered in March 1954 at the hands of America's leading TV journalist, Edward R. Murrow. Well, Edward R. Murrow was the most famous uh, television personality in the United States in the 1950s. He had been a famous London radio correspondent uh, for the Columbia Broadcasting System uh, during World War II, broadcasting from London, and he had a tremendous audience, and then he made the transition successfully to television, and uh, Ed Murrow did an hour-long documentary on Joe McCarthy's career, and it demonstrated McCarthy's recklessness and uh, unreliability and was very damaging to McCarthy. Morrow's producer at CBS was Fred Friendly. To what extent did he think the program contributed to McCarthy's downfall? My own feeling, and uh, I think it was Morrow's, is that McCarthy himself was his own worst enemy that the McCarthy hearings, in which he lost his temper on one of the last days of the hearings over the Fred Fisher thing, and Mr. Welch was able to say to him, Mr. Senator McCarthy, have you have, do you have no shame? 
that that was really the climax and then the censure by the Senate at large. I do believe that uh, broadcast journalism sort of came of age at that time because it was demonstrated that somebody of Murrow's stature could do a broadcast that strong with a closing that powerful, written by Ed, uh, could make a difference. And as you know, we got something between 80,000 and 100,000 letters and phone calls, telegrams and things. And uh, I think it enabled a lot of other broadcasters uh, and a lot of other journalists uh, to understand that they could play a vital role, not just in reporting all of the inexact statements of McCarthy, his excesses, his aberrations, but they could say, well, this is what the senator said, but he had no proof. And uh, the truth is this, not just to let him say it, and if Dean Acheson had no desire or ability to answer that they weren't 205 communists in the State Department or whatever the McCarthy figure was, that it was somebody else's job to do it. Now, I don't mean to say for one minute that uh, Murrow was the first to do this. The uh, New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, uh, were in the vanguard of... Uh, attacking McCarthy for his aberrations. I suppose we were the first mass media instrument to try to do it, and I suppose we'll always get more credit for that than we really deserved. Uh, for all the writing about Joseph McCarthy, when you saw this portrait of, if I may use the word evil, and of character assassination right before you, uh, it moved people, and they understood what they could not read in the pages of a newspaper. No one familiar with the history of his country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. His primary achievement has been in confusing the public mind as between the internal and the external threats of communism. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend the causes that were for the moment unpopular. This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent, or for those who approve. We can deny our heritage and our history, but we cannot escape responsibility for the result. There is no way for a citizen of a republic to abdicate his responsibilities. As a nation, we have come into our full inheritance at a tender age. We proclaim ourselves as indeed we are, the defenders of freedom wherever it continues to exist in the world. But we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night and good luck.
McCarthy's Fort Monmouth investigation into the army, which had involved Corliss Lamont, had quickly become tangled up in the bizarre efforts of his assistant Roy Cohn to obtain favourable treatment for another of McCarthy's counsel, David Shine, who'd recently been drafted. McCarthy's investigation of the army had begun to take the form of personal attacks on defence chiefs, most notably Secretary for the Army Robert Stevens and former Secretary of State General George Marshall. The army retaliated by issuing an account of the attempts of McCarthy and Cohn to obtain preferential treatment for Shine. McCarthy, in his turn, hit back with a welter of countercharges. He claimed that the army had tried to use the Shine affair to force him to abandon his investigation. He also alleged that Secretary Stevens had promised to dig up some dirt on the Air Force and Navy if McCarthy would leave the army alone. At a press conference, Stevens refuted these charges and also defended Army Counsel John G. Adams, who had been accused of trying to blackmail McCarthy over the Shine affair. This afternoon at a news conference, Senator McCarthy made reference to what he identified as an unsigned memorandum of November 6, 1953, taken from the files of the subcommittee of which he is chairman. I am informed that it reports me as urging the subcommittee to go after the Navy, Air Force, or Defense Department instead of the Army, and offering to furnish leads to plenty of dirt. Immediately upon learning of this, I issued a statement that the charge was utterly untrue. Anyone who knows me would realize that such a charge is fantastic. During the year that it has been my privilege to serve as Secretary of the Army, my interest in and cooperation with the Navy and the Air Force has been widely known throughout those two splendid services. Anything in those services which seemed to me to need attention has been called to the notice of the other secretaries, and they have done the same for me. It would never enter my mind to do other than uphold the hand of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Defense Department. The security and well-being of our country comes first in my actions and thoughts. With respect to the other charges made at the news conference today, I have full confidence and faith in John G. Adams, Counselor of the Department of the Army, who had a major part in the events of the last few months. Part of the secret of McCarthy's success was the tacit support which he had gained from his party's bosses in his attacks on the Democrats for 20 years of treason. But now his attacks were becoming more strident. The cry had become one of 21 years of treason, and he was attacking the administration of his own party. In attacking the army and the Republican army secretary, he isolated himself and thus became more vulnerable. The allegations of both the Army and McCarthy were investigated by McCarthy's subcommittee, but without the Wisconsin senator in the chair. It was in these hearings that he was to encounter his nemesis in the form of the Army's special counsel, Joseph Welsh. Uh, Welsh had been uh, born in Iowa and grew up there, but uh, after he became a lawyer, he joined a Boston law firm and... Uh, came to, by the time he became famous as an old man in his 60s, uh, he seemed to be the epitome of the uh, Boston lawyer, courteous, dignified, and proper. And he was employed by the United States Army to be its special counsel in 1954 when Senator McCarthy started an investigation of the Army on the ground that there were communists in the Army being shielded 
by generals and high civilians in the Department of the Army. And Welch um, cross-examined McCarthy at various points very skillfully and managed to create the image in the public's mind. This was also on television, and television was just then getting a great hold on the American public. Uh, he created the image in the public's mind of the dignified, civilized man against this uh, ruthless barbarian. Joseph Welch uh, really was a match for Joe McCarthy. He was even better. He was an extremely clever, articulate lawyer and a good actor, too. And uh, he did a masterful job in uh, uh, confronting McCarthy in those hearings. Uh, he, that was a superlative job. Uh, he helped, uh, as did Murrow and others. Had those hearings been in private, would the impact have been the No, no. The fact that they were on uh, telecast live on television, I can remember, you know, leaving my job so I could go and watch them. They were fascinating, and they had huge audiences, and the impact was uh, tremendous, as you imply, had they been just, uh, you know, on Capitol Hill without any live coverage uh, they wouldn't have had near the impact. So in a sense, television helped to create him in the first place. Well, that's and true, and it helped bring him down. In the course of the hearings, McCarthy used some of his most devious tricks to extricate himself from his difficulties. The most celebrated of these was the introduction of a doctored photograph which purported to show Army Secretary Stevens in private conversation with Shine. It was a device that had proved successful in elections, but it failed here. Attorney Welsh was a constant source of irritation. The hearings developed into a duel between the two men and it was in an attempt to redress the balance in his favour that on June the 9th, 1954, McCarthy resorted to another old tactic of his, the smear. The manoeuvre resulted in this famous exchange between the two men. In view of Mr Welsh's request that uh, the information be given once we know of anyone who might be performing any work for the Communist Party. I think we should tell him that he has in his law firm uh, a young man named Fisher, whom he recommended incidentally to do the work in this committee, who has been for a number of years a member of an organization which was named, oh, years and years ago, as the legal bulwark of the Communist Party, an organization which always springs to the defense uh, of anyone who uh, dares to expose communists. Uh, I certainly assume that Mr. Welch did not know of this uh, uh, young man at the time, he recommended him as the assistant counsel for this committee, but he has such terror and such a great desire to know where anyone is located who may be serving the communist cause, Mr. Welch, that I thought we should uh, just call to your attention the fact that you're Mr. Fisher, who is still in your law firm today, whom you asked to have down here looking over the secret and classified material, is a member of an organization not named by me, but named by 
uh, various committees named by the Attorney General, as I recall. I think I quote this uh, verbatim as the legal bulwark of the Communist Party. Until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness. Fred Fisher is a young man who went to the Harvard Law School and came into my firm and is starting what looks to be a brilliant career with us. Walsh then goes on to make an impassioned defence of Fisher. The young lawyer had been chosen to work on the hearings, but Welsh had issued a blanket warning to his assistants that anything even remotely exceptionable in their pasts might be used as a red herring by McCarthy. Fisher had immediately informed Welsh that after his college days, he'd briefly joined the Lawyers Guild, a left-wing organisation. He was now an eminently respectable secretary of his local Young Republican League, but Welsh decided nonetheless to take him off the case. And so, Senator, I asked him to go back to Boston. Little did I dream you could be so reckless and so cruel as to do an injury to that lad. It is true he is still with Hale and Dorr. It is true that he will continue to be with Hale and Dorr. It is, I regret to say, equally true that I fear he shall always bear a scar needlessly inflicted by you. If it were in my power to forgive you for your reckless cruelty, I would do so. I like to think I'm a gentleman, but your forgiveness will have to come from someone other than me. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. Let's, let's You've done enough. Have right. you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? This, I know this hurts you, Mr. Welch. I'll but say it hurts. I say, Mr. Chairman, as a point of personal privilege, I'd like to finish this. Senator, I think it hurts you too, I'd, sir. I'd like to finish this. Uh, Mr. Mr. Welch here has been filibustering this hearing. It seems that Mr. Welch is pained so deeply, he thinks it's improper for me to give the record, the communist front record, of the man whom he wanted to foist upon this committee. But the point is, Mr. Chair, I'd like to say again that he does not believe Mr. Welch recommended Mr. Fisher as counsel for this committee because he had, through his office, all the recommendations which were made and does not recall any of them coming from Mr. Welch, and that would include Mr. Fisher. Well, let me ask Mr. Welch. You, you brought him down, did you not, to act as your assistant? Mr. McCarthy, I will not discuss this further with you. You have sat within six feet of me and could, ask, could have asked me about Fred Fisher. You have seen fit to bring it out, and if there is a God in heaven, it will do neither you nor your cause any good. I will not discuss it further. I will not ask Mr. Cohen any more witnesses. You, Mr. Chairman, may, if you will, call the next witness. Are there any questions to come from the uh, members of the judge? The applause after the speech of Welsh was indicative of the change of fortunes which was to take place. McCarthy had long since passed his zenith. 
It just took until the Army McCarthy hearings for the U.S. Senate to realize that it could now stop him. By attacking the army, he was frontally attacking President Eisenhower, who, of course, had been a general in the army and who had appointed the secretary of the army and the chief of staff, all of whom were under criticism by McCarthy. And President Eisenhower was immensely popular. And so he was pitting himself against the most popular and powerful man in American public life. So he overreached himself. And politicians who had never liked him and had been waiting for the opportune moment now moved in to counterattack. And so a Republican senator moved to have him censured by the Senate for misconduct. And Senator Johnson, the Democratic leader, who later became vice president and president, uh, he then rallied the conservative Southern Democrats who had been lying low for the four years since Tidings was uh, defeated and said... Uh, it was safe now in his judgment, and he was a very cautious man, to come forward and have a united front against McCarthy. So he rounded up every Democratic vote in the Senate for censure, and a fair number of progressive Republicans joined in with him. And so McCarthy was censured, and in a curious way, it was like putting a pin into a balloon. Once he was censured, it was like the balloon had been pricked and he, he suddenly collapsed almost overnight as a public figure. He ceased to get big press attention, and he would make statements and speeches with reckless and sensational charges, just as sensational as the ones he had made in 51 and 2 and 3, and now suddenly they were relegated to uh, page 27 and get a half a column there rather than page 1. Also, the fact that the Republicans lost control of the Senate in 1954 meant that he was no longer chairman of an investigating committee. Therefore, he could not summon witnesses and command a staff as he had when he was a subcommittee chairman. And that fact was very important in diminishing his power. So he then only lived, he lived less than uh, two and a half years after he was censured. He began to drink heavily. He had always drunk some. He now began to drink very heavily and to uh, gamble on the commodity market and he lost a good deal of money, and uh, his health began to go, and then in 1957 he suddenly died. The 1954 Senate condemnation rendered McCarthy harmless, but during the period when he held sway did he do much damage. Two men who experienced McCarthy's excesses either directly or indirectly were Joseph L. Rao, Washington liberal lawyer, and William Colby, former head of the CIA. Uh, he scared our country to death, let's face it. Uh, uh, people would uh, not want to, uh, if, you, if you were known, as I was known, as a uh, opponent of McCarthy, I spoke out, I debated, I uh, was in the public prints, I was one of the leaders of the Americans for Democratic Action at the time, I was in the American Civil Liberties Union, I really fought him. The people were scared. They were scared to be seen with him. There's no question he frightened America. But s slowly, I'll tell you how, they, uh, after about a year, it's like concentric circles. As more people were wronged, more of their friends would know about it. As m you get more and more people involved, and, and there's a turning of the tide. I think the last three years he was on the defensive, but he was such a tremendously articulate uh, guy with no scruples, whatever, that he was able to keep it going. But remember, uh, the last period, he's on the defensive, the censure, he is censured, he drinks himself to death, so that uh, he avoid exposure only for a limited period. But I, I would say there was a year or a year and a half 
when he scared America to death. The United States throws up demagogues like this every now and again. I mean, we had uh, we had uh, various ones during the 1930s, uh, extremist positions. Uh, we've had right-wing demagogues. We've had left-wing demagogues. Uh, the know-nothings, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, we've had them all. I mean, uh, and uh, they have their brief appearance on the stage, and people get excited about them, and many people get concerned about them. But there is a basic good sense out there in the broad mass of the electorate that recovers, and it comes up and then rejects these extremists after a time. The problem is that in the period of their ascendancy, they're getting mass media coverage throughout the world. They're having an impact on other people's attitudes toward America, as though somebody like McCarthy is typical of America, when really he's a very atypical, and he's exactly the kind of spirit that is, works through our system and then is rejected. It's like catching a cold. I mean, you, it, it's obvious you have a runny nose, you're coughing, and so forth. But your bodily strength is such that in a few days it begins to reassert itself and rejects that disease. Well, that's what McCarthyism is in the United States, and that's what uh, various other demagogues have been. At the height of his power, though, did he have a lot of support? He had a lot of support, sure, uh, very distinct. And the, there was a period in which people were afraid to bell the cat uh, in the prevailing atmosphere of concern and fear about Soviet uh, intentions and capabilities that an attempt to move against McCarthy, who would wrap himself in the American flag, totally cynically, but wrap himself in the American flag, uh, he would attack as being anti-American, anti-himself. It was a period of the House on American Activities Committee and all that sort of thing. And uh, it wasn't until some very brave men uh, stood up to him, uh, like Senator, Senator Aiken of Vermont and uh, some of the real kind of the bedrock good people that uh, our system does produce. Historian Robert Griffith, in his book, The Politics of Fear, makes the following observation. Joe McCarthy did not win national notoriety because of some chance remarks made at Wheeling, West Virginia, nor because of the conviction of Alger Hiss, nor even because of the Cold War. He rose to power because of a political dynamic created during the late 40s by a band of Republican partisans as they scrapped and clawed their way toward power. To what extent was McCarthy simply a vote-getting ploy of the Republicans? Yeah, I would say, uh, if one could uh, quantify an answer to a question like that arithmetically, perhaps that's 30 to 40 percent of the explanation. I think the onset of the Cold War, the outbreak of the Korean War, the shift of China to, from, uh, uh, from what we thought of as the free world to communism, I think all of those were equally important factors, but certainly the fact that the Republican Party was undergoing a renaissance uh, in the late 1940s was part of it. The Republicans captured the House and Senate in 1946 for the first time in 16 years uh, since the coming of the Great Depression in 1930 and fully expected to win the presidency in 1948. Instead, President Truman was re-elected over Governor Dewey in what was a sensational upset. And that made the Republicans already out of power in the White House for 16 years. Now they were going to be out of power for 20. And it made their frustrations mount to new intensity. So as a result, they were prepared to do and countenance rather desperate and reckless measures in an effort to discredit the Democrats. 
when McCarthy came along in 1950 with these uh, wild communist charges, a fair number of Republican politicians who privately did not believe them uh, were nevertheless prepared to uh, lend a nominal support and egg him on. McCarthy succeeded in damaging the Democratic Party, but the effects were short-term. I mean, when you had people like Senator Helen Douglas, who was a Democrat, being defeated by Richard Nixon in that hysteria of the time, it hurt us at the time. I think that uh, in the long run, it helped the Democratic Party in the sense that we, uh, we wouldn't countenance this and we fought against it. And in the long run, I think the public sided with us. What damage did he do finally to the Republican Party? Well, I think he did a lot of damage. I mean, no self-respecting intellectual for a long time would be a Republican. I mean, they didn't want to be associated with people like that. And that's the climate I grew up in. I, I'm 53 and almost 53. And uh, when I came along uh, in the period, say, of Adlai Stevenson and John F. Kennedy, uh, <laughs> nobody wanted to be, nobody with a college education wanted to be a Republican because they were demagogues and engaged in smear tactics. The ultimate explanation for such victories as came the way of McCarthy lies in the aphorism, for evil to triumph, it is necessary only for good men to remain silent. With a few honourable exceptions, the bulk of the legislative and executive wings of the US government seem to have gone into a lengthy period of hibernation, allowing McCarthy free reign. Ultimately, McCarthy was the architect of his own destruction. In his challenge to the Republican leadership, he had revealed himself as a dangerous and uncontrollable political maverick. Finally, he paid the price for biting the hand which had fed him in the first place. He was by nature a, a, a gambler and a frivolous person, not a person with deep uh, convictions who stayed awake nights worrying about the future of the Republic or about great issues. He was in uh, politics because it was a career, it was fun, it was excitement, and when uh, he made these charges, he had no idea that they would uh, strike such a s sensitive uh, chord as they did and reverberate for so long. So he began to be like a a, um, a gambler who's throwing the dice and the dice keep coming up number seven so he keeps rolling the dice as long as this lucky streak holds. There is only one issue as I can see it. There's one great evil which all of the lesser evils flow in this country. The lesser evils such as the as high taxes, inflation, the absence of so many of our of the husbands, sons and brothers in the service and that is the suicidal Kremlin-directed foreign policy the extent to which is controlled by communists in our government.